138 years at the heart of a community. Millions of theatre-goers, thousands of players, actors, and little tubs of ice cream. Will 2023 be the final year of the Oldham Coliseum? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris, and in for Yoshi this week is Jack Dulhanty. Hello there, Jack. Hey, Daryl, you alright? I'm very well, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Just getting on. Good. Keeping, keep on keeping on. Um, I'd like to talk to you about going for a walk in a little bit, uh, if you don't mm. mind, because you wrote a really nice thing in the mill, didn't you, this week about um, about the, 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 the sort of joy, but also the importance, really, of just sort of setting out and walking places around the city, seeing who you can find and what you can find, and not just for journalism, I guess, but for your own you know, your own you know, scope of meeting people and seeing things and doing stuff. I thought that was a really nice point that you made about going for a walk. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, not exactly our headline news, go for a walk. Uh, uh, we'll get we'll get in a moment to a new 70-storey um, tower that's being built in the centre of Manchester. And of course, some big questions for Greater Manchester Police around issues regarding conduct, which you'll have been following in the national headlines as well as much as anything else. Let's start, though, in Oldham this week, Jack, uh, where Oldham Coliseum has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons, cancelling all of its events after the 26th of March. This caused quite a stir, didn't it, Jack, this week? What's going on? Yeah, so you remember when Arts Council funding was sort of announced earlier on, or late last year, sorry. A lot of the talk was about the um, the ENO, the English Nas- England National Opera, being moved from London to Manchester. But within all of that... Most of that talk, Jack, was on this podcast with Yoshi. Literally the majority of it was Yoshi, yeah. Um, it was all in his, his tone. And there are... Um, Amongst all of that, we wrote about it at the time, was this risk where you saw out-of-borough culture at risk. So when I say that, I basically mean um, cultural institutions that are outside of the city centre that have had Art Council funding cut or withdrawn. And in the case of the Coliseum, they lost their funding in the latest funding round and have spent the last few months or the time since then trying to figure out a solution. Um, But they said in a statement that the current financial situation is not sustainable for the season as planned. And that they did announce their um, spring-summer season and pantomime, which they've now cancelled in in, like the best faith. Like they they genuinely did think they were going to be able to fix this. But in the end, it's it's come to this. So I suppose there's two two, uh, elements to this story, isn't there? Funding for arts, which has been hotly talked about and debated since those decisions around those funding streams. But also, as you say... And there's you know there's lots to be said about funding to arts, but one of the things that lots of that has been said and will continue to be said about the cuts to funding to arts and the impact that that has on communities and places like Oldham Coliseum, but out of borough theatre and out of borough activity, you know, is is a really important point, isn't it? Having a thriving theatre in somewhere like Oldham, it feels incredibly sad for us to lose that. Yeah, because obviously these are places that double as community spaces. They aren't just somewhere for the pursuit of art. And it's it's worth mentioning as well that it's not really the case like all of the outer borough uh, art institutions or cultural hubs, whatever you want to say, have lost funding. Like one in Wigan got a huge uptick in funding in, in this round. It's just the sort of, in some ways, I guess it's just the way that the dice fall. I just I remember growing up in Bolton and having the Octagon Theatre on our doorstep. And I went to some drama 
summer drama classes when I was a kid there. And, you know, it was somewhere that you'd pop into a coffee for, for, for a coffee or you'd, you know, you'd meet, you'd meet somebody there or whatever, but also the place to go and to express yourself when you were doing the classes, but also to kind of watch other people doing that as well and to broaden your horizons and to, to, you know, to experience culture in a way that would, um, you know, that the, the, a town like Bolton really needs. And, you know, to see Oldham losing it, losing theirs is really sad. It feels really devastating to me that. Yeah. And it's a huge loss of sort of local talent. When you talk about, you know, part of levelling up isn't just getting people to be great bankers or have those kinds of financial or economic opportunities. It's also create, about creating creative opportunity and an opportunity to produce art and stuff like that. So it, it kind of runs contra to, to those ideas too. Okay, um, we'll keep an eye on that story as ever, as always we do. Um, let's uh, let's head a little bit further into the city though, uh, Jack, because there is a new mega tower being built in the city centre. We've been hearing a lot about these as well lately, haven't we? What's this one? Yeah, you don't get much more city centre than this. This is like the new city centre. The skyline of Manchester is always like a pretty up there topic, literally. Haha, <laughs> excuse the pun, I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, this is Renneker and Simpson Hoff, who are kind of this dominant partnership when it comes to building very big, shiny glass towers. And now they are building their biggest shiny glass tower yet. It will be 71 storeys with a restaurant at the top. It's part of the Jackson Street uh, or Great Master, Great Jackson Street Master Plan, beg your pardon, and it'll actually include another four towers as well as the tallest one. So it's going to account for something like I think it's over two thousand homes. Where is Great Jackson Street? So that's around the sort of Castle. Field. Yeah, if you go, yeah, like if you carried on down Deansgate towards Beetham Tower, you end up kind of moving towards Hume and all where you get a little bit more industrial parky uh, Barton place where you get like, I think this is where Urban Splash is based and you get closer to where like Capital and Centric are based. And yeah, just before that, so basically if you think where Deansgate Square is and those four big towers uh, down the road, a little bit further down the road there, they're building yet more towers. It'll create this sort of cluster, like a forest of towers um, and this will be the biggest one. I was about to say, I just love that there'll be a restaurant on top of it. I feel like it's just such a thing to do now whenever someone builds a new building, you have to put a restaurant on the top floor of it. I love it. <laughs> a restaurant I'm so glad because, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, okay, um, I, I was driving across there, uh, across Mancunian Way yesterday, last night, and uh, all, you know, seeing all those lights on and seeing it all lit up, it really did feel, you know, people talk about Manha- Manhattan Chester and that kind of the vibe. And for the first time, it struck me, and I sort of thought, "Wow, that does look incredibly impressive. It looks big and ambitious, and like a city. Um, mm. It's not without its drawbacks, though, is it? Let's be honest about it. What are the what are the sort of what are the for and against this kind of thing, Jack? Well, I mean, the for is obviously that you're looking at the future of Manchester, and it's the it's the new young professionals who are coming in and need places to live, and it's the kind of UK's second city argument. There's a lot of arguments for it. The argument against it, I suppose, is kind of how do we justify this juxtaposition between a giant, shiny glass towers with swimming pools in and a concierge service for the people who live there while we have a homelessness crisis and the number of temporary people living in temporary accommodation is the highest in the country. So it's like, huh. That, I suppose some people would look at that dynamic and think that seems a bit off. Okay, uh, very interesting. I suppose there's also the element of the of of what 
a whole a, a, such an influx of residents does to the dynamics of a city mm. and to the flow of a city which we've talked about quite a bit haven't we on this podcast and uh, yeah. and and in the mill all right but for now it's on its way up uh, a 70 story building in the center of town um uh, and elsewhere as well this week jack this is a really interesting story that you um that we had in the mill uh, earlier this week about a character that if you're a manchester united fan will probably be quite familiar to you a guy who edited uh, Red Issue, which is a, man, a very popular, or was a very popular Manchester United fanzine. And he's made the news in uh, in quite a few outlets, actually, the last couple of days. They've been writing about him and, and the, the, the path that he's taken. Who is this and, and why are we talking about him? Yeah, John Paul O'Neill is his name. He was the editor of Red Issue, which was a Manchester United fanzine. Still is, I suppose. It's still got a Twitter account, but he's kind of signed off it. You can still go and look at all these tweets that have become the section, the sort of subject of this amazing long read in The Economist's um, 1843 magazine, which kind of charts the way that this O'Neill guy became kind of enamoured with conspiracy theories during the pandemic. And I mean, the fact that he's a Manchester United fanzine editor isn't actually the main part of the piece. It's obviously why we're covering it, but... What, what's really interesting about it is the way that this story kind of charts how he, like many other people uh, during the pandemic, became a lot more susceptible to conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories that literally at the start of the pandemic, this guy was calling um, other theorists like wackos and making satirical memes about the sort of theories that they were throwing around. And within a year, he was peddling the same lines. So it kind of showed how I think the effect that the pandemic had a lot of people, how how long it lasted. I think it eroded people's confidence in government enough that they actually started looking for more linear, um, easier to understand solutions in a way. I don't say that to be in a patronising way because I think we all thought that as well. You want like the clear, the thing that just looks more A to B rather than what we, what some, I believe, what really happened was a lot of fuddled up, difficulties that were the pandemic yes quite um there was a really interesting article for a really interesting line in this uh this piece that that uh, that the economist wrote in which it says the story is written across manchester's skyline where in recent years a forest of high-end residential towers has soared even as the percentage of homeless people climbed to among the highest in the country which i suppose brings us back to uh that original point doesn't it yeah exactly i mean it's the kind of disillusionment, I guess, that people feel where you can't help but escape the idea that you, the ordinary people, are picking up the tab for better off people in many ways. And that's essentially what O'Neill came to believe. He was a great reset theorist, which the great reset is the idea that the pandemic was used by a group of elites to kind of like seize power over the world by like subduing people with lockdowns. As I say, it's a conspiracy theory. But it's something that, you know, when Oxford University did studies on this, they found that 40% of British adults felt in some way that the pandemic was probably used by um, elites. I'll actually find it here. Research by Oxford University found that 40% of British adults thought COVID was part of a power grab by elites looking to control parts of society or all of society. So it's it's a, it's a pervasive theory. Um, so it's kind of... I guess the question that made me ask was, these conspiracy theories have existed for ages. Why did people who weren't up until that point very susceptible to them become so much more susceptible to them over the pandemic? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a 
it's a very interesting line of inquiry, isn't it? Uh, um, more in the mill, you can read more about this guy and him being a fascinating case study, really, for for that and for that journey that a lot of people have gone on. Uh, Manchestermill.co.uk. Um, elsewhere this week, Jack, uh, a story that kind of connects, actually, doesn't it? Uh, uh, directly, intrinsically. A story from Farmworth about the redevelopment of Farmworth. One of these towns that could consider itself, I think, or many would point to as being a left-behind type of town. Lots of social issues. My home town, kind of. Um, what's going on in Farmworth? Yeah, so you're right there that Farmworth is kind of considered one of the left-behind towns in Greater Manchester. These are normally like satellite towns in boroughs in like Salford, Bury, Rochdale, where... You know, it's that kind of story that you hear, market town, had a market, lost the market. Uh, over time, the high street kind of goes a bit downhill, places start closing, then an Asda will open, and then everyone will bemoan the Asda that ripped the heart out of the community, but everyone still has to use the Asda. What's interesting with Farnworth is now that Capital and Centric, who you'll know from the Manctopia documentary, Tim Heatley's one of the co-founders, this, this kind of really big social impact developer who are known for you know putting up some of the most sought after kind of developments in in Manchester city centre is looking to develop Farmworth town centre so it's the the interesting part is where where is kind of the next phase of the Manchester property boom is it in these kind of satellite towns and is the idea that developers like capital and centric are banking on these people who currently live in the city centre, getting tired of paying really high city centre rates, wanting to have a family, but not wanting to give up floor-to-ceiling windows and stuff like that. So they'll move out to somewhere like Farmworth, where it's only a 20-minute train back into the city centre. It'll be half the price with a bigger space, but it'll be with the same developer that they've lived in with lived with in the city centre. So it's kind of spreading out that uh, access to those kinds of properties, I guess. That's very interesting, isn't it? Very, very interesting. And and what does that what does that look like for Farmworth then? What what you know what 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 are we talking about here? Oh, um, it's eighty five design led apartments and twelve townhouses uh, built around a kind of public square where they want to have independent businesses and all that sort of thing. So it's like you know I hate to rely. I always think New Islington when I think about that. You know, like the kind of just lots of. Um, good apartments, townhouses, very quickly with trendy cafe bars in and around the area. And, you know, being able to offer that to the people who've had that in the city centre, but they get it at half the price, 20 minutes out of the way, is something that capitalist-centric and I'm sure other uh, developers at some point will bank on as a trend that they can um, profit from. Very, very interesting. Super, super interesting that. Although I will have to pick you up on one thing, Jack. Get into Farmworth in 20 minutes. You'd be lucky these days, oh, my friend. You'd be well, very lucky. Well, you should be able to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a 20-minute train journey once you're actually on the train, provided that it's running. <laughs> once it gets all, there. All those other little bits, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, speaking of which, uh, where are we at to in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, strike action then? Because today is a strike day as we record on a Wednesday. Uh, plenty going on this week. Yep, so teachers are striking today. My sister was on the picket line. She's an English teacher, so she was on the picket line this morning. Um, And it was also rail workers today, and rail workers will be striking again on Friday. So it's um, 
you see in that more now the kind of alignment of of strikes whether whether it's nurses teachers uh who else was going on strike there was the one that i saw the other day that actually really I think it might be me. easier for us to discuss who isn't going on strike yeah maybe <laughs> but yeah you it's just something i've noticed more that you see more services being um compromised on the same day i think that's quite a a thing um uh, elsewhere speaking of public services great manchester mm. police uh, we've heard a lot in the last sort of couple of weeks, really, haven't we, Jack, about police conduct. Of course, some really high-profile stories of police officers being charged for misconduct and question marks around safety, etc. Um, it's worth us considering what that means for Greater Manchester Police and what kind of numbers we're looking at at the moment, and we have some of those numbers. Yeah, it's been a particularly bad week for GMP in the news, actually. So nearly 100 officers, or 1.2% of the force, are facing allegations for sexual offences in GMP at the moment. And most recently, one officer has been sacked for an improper relationship that he developed with um, a vulnerable victim. And also, on top of that, the force has had to apologise in writing for failing to adequately adequately investigate complaints of sex trafficking. So it's kind of like in one week you've had the uh, a cluster of like the, it just feels at the moment like the force is kind of harried with issues. Yeah, it is uh, truly some extraordinary stories, aren't there, coming out of Greater Manchester, about out of the police force at the moment, and uh, um, hopefully strides will be made, I suppose, with those. Um, and Jack, let's talk about going for a walk, if we can. Uh, you wrote a piece in your writer's edition of The Mill this week about the importance, the necessity, really, in your position. But I think just in general, it's a nice piece of life advice, but going for a walk. Yeah. It's, it's a great idea. I highly recommend it. I mean, I was doing it because I was trying to get better at... Um, I'd been reading all of these old sort of city reporters from America, like Jimmy Breslin. I don't know if anyone will even know these names, but Jimmy Breslin and Ben Heck, like these kind of like 1920s, well, in, term, in the case of Ben Heck, um, 1920s, 30s guys who kind of just strolled around and happened to come upon local people and just chat with them about what they were doing that day and they would develop these really colourful narratives out of them. Um, Joseph Mitchell is probably one of the more famous ones. He used to write these, like, he used to spend years just writing about, like, one single normal person he met on the street. It's absolutely crazy. So I was trying to do that more um, in the hope of finding my own sort of Joseph Mitchell-style case study. Didn't find one, but I did kind of come to realise that you do notice a lot more about the city. You kind of almost, like... It's a difficult thing to explain. It's like the city feels a lot more uh, distilled to you when you walk around and you see all of it and everything's a little bit more relaxed. At the time that I went, it was kind of when everyone was leaving to go home. So I was just kind of, the city was beginning to drain out. The light was hitting all the buildings just right. And I think it's just a valuable thing to do. It makes you actually appreciate where you spend your time and work. Like I write in the piece, it's where it feels like you're in a place you would visit rather than just work in. Like it's kind of like, oh, I'm actually seeing this place as it's meant to be seen a little bit more rather than just like with my head down, get going to catch a bus or something. Yeah, beautifully said. And I couldn't agree more. Couldn't we used to I used to do a feature on an old BBC Radio Manchester show with a tour guide. We used to go out with a tour guide every week and we would and we would just walk just wander around this city that we all know so well and hear some of the stories of the of the places that we hurry past on our way somewhere. And um, uh, and and stop and look up at buildings. You know, stop for a moment and look up at a building. Mm. Remarkable what you can see. Um, 
that you don't see when you've got your head down. Would recommend you reading Jack's piece on that. Uh, ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe to that and where you go to subscribe to The Mill in general uh, and get some top quality journalism and some of Jack wandering around the city. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't making a point there. Um, uh, ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go. You are in the newsroom right now, my uh, my friend Jack. What What's going on? Are you um, What are you working on? Nothing's going on. I'm actually on my own in here at the moment, but... I'm working on this piece about Farmworth. I spoke to Tim Heatley last week and it was a really interesting conversation about how how all that sort of fits together. We're doing a piece this weekend about the B symbol, uh, Manchester's famous B symbol and how it came about. Um, I haven't actually read the draft yet, so I can't even let you in on that much of what we'll actually be telling you, but it will be interesting, I promise. Um, And also we'll be looking at Oldham Coliseum and doing a piece on that. I think Molly's working on that now. Nice, excellent. Okay, and we also like to give you a nod for the week ahead as well. Something to do in and around Greater Manchester. What should we be up to, Jack? Well, this Friday is actually the book launch for a book called Grime, which is written by, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Sybil Berg, who's a uh, German-Swiss playwright. And she's written this novel that's actually kind of about well, it's not kind of, it's about post-Brexit dystopian Britain, written from the perspective of someone who lives in Zurich. But she came to, the the main characters in the book are actually start out in Rochdale um, and kind of find their way through this sort of, again, very dystopian Britain towards London. And it's kind of, it's meant to be a great book. It's being launched here, uh, the launch date, the Book launches in Manchester this Friday, so I'm going to go to that uh, with Sophie Atkinson, who's kind of our in-house, uh, well, she's our culture editor and writer, but she'll be going down too. She's also used to live in Germany, so she's much more up to date on all things Sybil Berg than I am. Smashing. Oh, really nice. Okay, lovely. Um, I'm going to fire some recommendations at you, uh, if you will, so brace yourself. Um, tonight, Robin Ince, the comedian and writer, uh, is doing a show. Uh, he's um, He's been visiting a tour of 100 bookshops. Uh, and when he came back, he wrote a love letter to bookshops. Um, so his next tour is at the Blackwell. His next tour stop is at the Blackwells on Oxford Road. He's going to be discussing uh, that journey and uh, what, he, what he discovered about Britain and what he discovered about Britain's reading habits, etc. So that looks like a really nice thing to do. Uh, that is Thursday. So that is tonight as it stands. So hopefully, fingers crossed, you've got this in time and you can get down to it. If not, fear not, uh, because Justin Morehouse, who's another comedian, is also on at Larry on the 5th of February. So that is uh, this coming Sunday night. You can catch him at the Lowry. I think there's a handful of tickets still left. Um, and a nod for our friends at the Manchester Lit and Phil as well, who were with us uh, as our sponsors on the podcast last week. Uh, they're the Literary and Philosophical Society, and they have um, an event next Thursday where they're, they are asking, will humans become extinct through climate change? So that looks like a really good uh, thing to check out and I would highly recommend them not just because they paid us to say so but because genuinely think it looks like it's really interesting um, as we said last week and also one more as well by the way um, a new exhibition that has launched this week called Undefining Queer curated by a group of people who are identify as LGBTQIA+ tracing queer histories and narratives are the Whitworth's collections and it focuses on redressing some of the omissions uh, that have existed because of heteronormative museum practices uh, free to visit runs until December will challenge perhaps your perception and challenge some of the things you think you knew and thought through what you've found and seen at museums before um, always interesting 
Okay, that's it from us on this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast and leave us a comment as well and a rating. It means that more people will find it and we can keep doing it. Uh, And don't forget to subscribe to the Mill as well for quality journalism direct to your inbox. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you do that. Jack, for now, thank you. Thank you. See you next week.